First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Local activists join a rally in tally over Florida's K-12 education policies. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, the latest on the protest, which drew the Reverend Al Sharpton to Florida's capital this week. You can give us a call with your thoughts about it all at 549-2937. Then later, how Jacksonville's Telescope Health is working to reduce barriers to health care in the city and beyond. That and more ahead, but first this morning... Black lawmakers, religious leaders, activists, and civil rights icon Al Sharpton led a march to the Florida Capitol Wednesday. Their purpose was to criticize the state's rejection of an AP African-American studies course, along with other changes to education in Florida. Sharpton, a longtime activist who leads the National Action Network, denounced Governor Ron DeSantis. He also called for a voter drive to oppose the governor, who was reelected by a wide margin in November. Here's Sharpton. In slavery, it was against the law for us to read and write. And if whites taught us how to read and write, they could be indicted, prosecuted, or maybe executed. After 57 years of Jim Crow, it was education, Brown versus the Board of Education that kicked off in 1954, that inspired Rosa Parks to sit down a year late in 1955. If you would study history, Governor, you would have known to mess with us in education always ends to your defeat. Now, the march and rally came after the State Department of Education last month told the College Board that an AP African-American Studies course would not be offered in Florida classrooms unless changes were made. The College Board has fired back at the DeSantis administration. At the same time, we welcome to this show Dwight Bullard, senior political advisor for Florida Rising and a former Democratic state senator. He helped organize Wednesday's rally. Dwight Bullard, good to have you. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. We also reached out to Moms for Liberty, the leading Florida organization pushing for educational changes in the state, but they declined our invitation to join us this morning. We do invite all of you listening to join us. The number is 549-2937, 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax. Facebook already getting your comments there, too. So, Dwight Bullard, you served in the Florida legislature. They will be meeting soon in their spring legislative session. Uh, Rallies in Tallahassee are common. They don't always draw Mm -hmm. Al Sharpton, though. Uh, This fight over AP African-American studies in Florida has drawn national attention. Why did you and other activists feel it was important to rally this week? Well, whether it's this week, last week, or or Mm. throughout the the entirety of the session, there's going to be consistent agitation. Uh, we're hoping to bring in uh, any other national partners, uh, National Action Network included, NAACP included, to make sure that Governor DeSantis understands that we are serious about making sure that not just black students, but all students have access to a, a high-quality education. Uh, this attack on uh, the AP, on advanced placement, on the college board uh, at this given moment um, is really, you know, appalling considering how uh, consistent uh, the the college board has been in administering the AP exams uh, for students across the state of Florida. This is a benefit uh, for students who are trying to get uh, access to college in terms of uh, freer education, coursework, advanced coursework uh, prior to enrolling. And so uh, for him to kind of take this stance, not only in AP African-American history, but now the full-on, uh, you know, as he calls it, a review of our relationship with College Board, it's really embarrassing in showing uh, uh, how he has really taken this personal and made this more personal than it needs to be. The governor has hinted that he he might say goodbye to the 
College Board in Florida and the opportunity for kids to take AP courses. Now, for people who don't have kids or don't know what this is, advanced placement courses are college-level classes that are offered to high school students. Sometimes you get college credit for them. Florida's Department of Ed said they were rejecting the African-American Studies course because it included topics like Black Queer Studies and the Reparations Movement. So let me ask you, Dwight, the College Board at the beginning of this month released an updated course framework that scrubs some of those topics. Florida still didn't accept the course. And now the College Board is coming out swinging. They put out a statement saying that they regret not immediately denouncing Florida's slander. DeSantis accused them of putting what he calls neo-Marxism into the proposed syllabus. And as I mentioned, he's now suggesting Florida could completely sever ties with the College Board. They develop these advanced placement courses. They even create the SAT test. Um, what about this, the, the, this prospect that uh, Florida high school students pot potentially would no longer be able to take AP classes through the College Board, although the governor is saying they could take similar classes elsewhere? Well, well, first and foremost, the governor's, uh, you know, initial rejection and then subsequent rejection again of the updated course really shows its true colors and shows a, a pattern of racist behavior uh, going back to the redistricting of districts, you know, right there in the Jacksonville area, mm -hmm. uh, you know, anti-protest uh, initiatives, anti-LGBTQ initiatives that he has proposed uh, and endorsed uh, over his tenure in office. And so I just want to be clear that the governor has shown a consistent and deliberate pattern of racist and bigoted behavior towards many marginalized groups uh, over his tenure. And so this doesn't surprise or shock me, but really, this really does strike at the heart of children throughout the state of Florida who, I mean, I want people to fully appreciate this. When we think about the fact that the college board issues the SAT, how many generations of students have taken the SAT in order to gain college acceptance or find out where they are in the spectrum of, uh, of uh, abilities uh, et cetera, in, in terms of their matriculation into higher education. And now you have a governor of the state of Florida saying that the organization that for decades has administered this uh, is no longer viable, um, you know, and to do it and that we need to review uh, other organizations. What he's going to find out ultimately is that the ACT is, is similar in nature. So are you going to now battle any uh, organization that you disagree with uh, because they have, you know, uh, the ability and, and are audacious enough to, to talk about American history in its full and robust nature, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's really what's at stake here is the governor's inability to recognize that American history isn't always bells, whistles, and rainbows. It is oftentimes very ugly, very disappointing. And 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 we need to be able to critically think and and mm. encourage our children to be critical thinkers as it relates to how we as a country thrive and push through some of our uglier history uh and in, 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 in order to ultimately be better. Now as I mentioned you did serve in the Florida legislature. Uh, Democrats in the legislature are objecting to these changes shifting away for the college board for example. Uh, Democrats are an extreme minority in Tallahassee. The governor was reelected by double digits. And so, uh, realistically, what can protests like these accomplish in a state where the, the majority of the voters agree with the governor's moves on this? Or at least they express that at the ballot box. Well, you know... Looking at American history, I look at places like Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1957. You know, these these are it, it has gotten to that moment where the Department of Justice, where where the federal government may have to step in and intervene in the state of Florida for its failure to address issues around uh, equality and equity, um, and that's really what is at the forefront. That's what prompts a march. Uh, like yesterday's march is 
people in communities saying enough is enough, that these t- attacks are unnecessary, that the freedom to think, the freedom of speech, the freedom to protest, you know, our basic tenets uh, of of the, the Bill of Rights are under attack. And so if the Bill of Rights are under attack, then that means that, uh, you know, the government that governs our country has to, uh, you know, turn its spotlight to certain states to make sure that those states are not violating key tenets of our Constitution. And I would argue that Governor DeSantis has, has crossed a critical line um, in taking these steps towards basically dismantling education, even when you even when it goes beyond the APA courses, uh, what he's doing to New College, what he's doing with uh, diversity, equity, inclusion programs uh, at state universities and state colleges that that, you know, you're going in and trying to uh, force these institutions to scrub their budgets of anything that deals with diversity, equity, or inclusion, it's appalling. It's embarrassing. And uh, irrespective of the the makeup of the legislature, um, you know, the governor may be called to task for the illegality of these actions. Let's get your opinions, everyone. Give us a call. Our guest is former state senator Dwight Bullard of Florida Rising. 549-2937. Give us a call, folks. Kendra. Is it Kendra or Andrea? Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. I'd like to definitely uh, agree with what the gentleman has said about Governor DeSantis's uh, racist speech and behavior being very deliberate. These are not dog whistles anymore. This is a bullhorn. Uh, his speech is racist. His behavior is racist. He's uh, failed to uh, quickly condemn or condemn at all anti-Semitic uh, attacks. And also, just as the gentleman said, he has crossed – Governor DeSantis has crossed a critical line. The thing is, by coupling gay rights with black history, that is a continuation of the Southern strategy. This is all about white supremacy. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. Uh, Here's an email, Dwight, from a listener expressing another point of view. He says the governor won by a landslide and he got 59 percent of the Hispanic vote. He won the Asian vote, increased African-American support, and the Seminole tribe was one of his biggest supporters. Okay, Dwight Bullard. Yes. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just saying in response to the email, um, you know, elections can be viewed as mandates, but not a mandate for racism. Um, uh, yes, he had a broad coalition of, of folks who supported him, but I would also argue that the the real majority were those who decided to sit home because they were just sick and tired of the, the hyper-partisan uh, nonsense that comes out of, uh, out of Tallahassee. And so I would definitely encourage folks to, you know, reevaluate their participation in the franchise, their participation in elections. Uh, and step up in this moment because, yes, although he only has uh, this term left as governor of the state of Florida, we cannot continue to send a message uh, to folks in his party that that it's okay uh, to reevaluate, you know, revise and whitewash uh, the history of our country. Uh, And certainly uh, political observers uh, of this governor have noted this before. This is not news. they see the moves he's making when it comes to education and other areas uh, that uh, are points of division as part of an overall play to become the 2024 GOP nominee for president. What are your thoughts about that? I think uh, what, what Governor DeSantis will find is that when the scrutiny of the national media uh, shines a spotlight on, on these bad policies, that he will find himself uh, uniquely embarrassed uh, in going into places like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. I mean, when we think about South Carolina, you know, as he would like to talk about the history of that uh, of this country, I'm sure he would highlight the fact that they were the first state to secede. It also happens to be the the, the state uh, that elected the first black congressperson after Reconstruction, and so I just want to make sure he understands that both sides of history are going to going to uh, converge and come into play when he stands, has to stand before, uh, you know, 
these these larger national constituencies and and really put his record uh, up for scrutiny. Heather in Ponte Vedra Beach. Good morning, Heather. What are your thoughts? Hi, good morning. My thoughts are that Florida, as well as the rest of the United States, is really behind and not as competitive throughout the world education system. When you look at China and India, and I'm just wondering what type of degree would advanced placement African-American studies bring to our students? How does that nurture our students? How does that put them on the competitive playing field for the world? Um, I think instead of introducing new theories that we need to get back to the core of education and really support our students across the board. And this isn't about, you know, black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. This is about nurturing and teaching and communicating and how can we do that on a world stage, not just, you know, let's get bogged down with this nonsense. How do we really support our students and, and what type of degree, what type of useful degree will this study bring to our students? Will they get a better job because they have this advanced placement um, studies course? There's, you know, a couple of concerns that I think no one really addresses here. Heather, thanks. Dwight Bullard. I'd be happy to address that. Uh, we currently offer European history, advanced placement American history, advanced placement Spanish language and culture, German language and culture, Japanese language and culture uh, as course offerings that already exist. Uh, so I would challenge the caller to think about what the diversity of those would offer. What I would counter uh, if, if she were to say that those can be scrapped as well is that we live in a globally competitive environment. Um, how would an African-American AP studies course help us? Imagine, uh, you know, you're going into a marketing firm trying to figure out uh, how to pitch to the African-American community. Wouldn't it be helpful to know, uh, you know, the history of, of the community that you're trying to sell product to? Wouldn't it be helpful to appreciate the diversity of uh, the company that you're going to go into, especially when you think about uh, companies that, are deliberately diverse uh, Silicon Valley companies like Google, Facebook, and others. So um, all that really ties into it. More, moreover, why would anyone, any parent, any taxpayer want to limit the number of potential uh, college course credits that a student might be able to access for free, irregardless uh, or irrespective of topic? Um, and African-American studies uh, should not be uh, the hill that folks want to die on uh, in terms of restricting uh, those, those course mm -hmm. offerings. What do you think about the fact that the College Board first appeared to, uh, you know, submit to the state's demands to remove some aspects of this course? The state rejected the course anyway after they did that. And now the College Board is saying, we regret not immediately denouncing the slant, what they call slander from the Florida Department of Education. Well, un, you know, unfortunately, the college board was under the impression that, that Governor DeSantis was was being rational. Um, and as as we uh, at Florida Rising come to understand Governor DeSantis and his push for policy over the last four years, Many of these things have been irrational. Um, many of the proposals, many of the laws that have been passed, we, we as an organization, have, have had the challenge uh, in court uh, because, again, Governor DeSantis has chosen to take a particular sway and angle towards who his, uh, you know, who his, you know, guns are pointed towards. Uh, we see women's reproductive health on the chopping block. We see uh, again, uh, LGBTQ plus uh, protections and uh, and benefits on the chopping block. We see attacks on immigrant rights, you know, as well as African American students. So it doesn't. Again, when you're looking around the room, if you're a cisgendered white male looking in the mirror every day, you understand that Ron DeSantis is out to absolutely, uh, you know, make you, uh, you know priority number one again, but for everyone else who doesn't fall in that category, it's been a rough four years. And so we're encouraging everybody to wake up uh, and, and realize that that these attacks, you know, 
you can no longer just sit back on the sidelines um, and and kind of expect, uh, you know, all of a sudden this miraculous turnaround from the defense administration that he's going to start being nice or playing nice or, or being uh, responsible. And uh, not to cut you off, we have lots of calls. That, uh, we're not going to have time to get all of you in, but uh, let's take one from a teacher. It's Jim. Jim in St. John's, are you a teacher? Is that right? Yes. Go ahead. I am. I'm a. I'm actually a professor. Hmm. And okay. uh, And what I mentioned was that I I am leaving education. Um, I'm appalled by DeSantis. I'm appalled by what he's doing. You know, on the education side with the diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, that's what we've striven. That is what we have strived for for you know many many years. And now he's dismantling that part. I, I mentioned that I was a principal investigator and two NSF grants to award scholarships to underrepresented individuals that were showed promise. And, you know, what's going to happen to being able to do that kind of uh, activity in this state, in this state. But um, it just, it just really upsets me. I'm sorry to hear that, Jim. And I want to thank you for calling. And I want to thank Dwight Bullard, a Florida Rising a former state senator joining us with more about this week's protest in Tallahassee. Dwight, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. We'll continue to follow these stories around education in Florida and much more still ahead. Later in the hour. They're not getting their annual wellness exam, either because they couldn't get an appointment or they don't know how to. And so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there who just don't have that access. We'll tell you how Jacksonville's Telescope Health is working to reduce barriers to care. And up next, local author Louise Stanton Warren on a notorious murder trial that rocked Jacksonville a century ago. We'll be right back. Well, local historian and author Louise Stanton Warren has published her first historical true crime narrative about a relatively unknown murder when Cuban-American Marie Louise Gatto was killed in 1897 in what is now the Springfield neighborhood. In the new book, Fatal Switch, Murder on the Panama Road, she tells the story of Marie Louise's killing and what became this area's trial of the century. Here she is. Hey, Louise, good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. So you're a local historian and also an author. This is a really fascinating true crime story, and it's a story that's almost been lost to history. Tell us about Marie-Louise Gatto at the turn of the century in Jacksonville. Marie-Louise Gatto was a young Cuban woman, as daughter of an, a wealthy cigar manufacturer. I think a lot of people don't realize that Jacksonville was a cigar town. In fact, it was. It had some of the first cigar factories in the state, even before Ybor City, where Ybor City took over. And that does not include um, Swisher Sweets or any of that, because they didn't come till 1930. The uh, father of Marie Louise was um, an aristocratic Cuban who was sneaked off the island due to the Ten Years' War. There were several insurrections by Cubans against Spain, who were horrible masters, slave masters, even uh, very, very bad to the aristocrats there, the landowners, the planters, in terms of taxes and land grabs and that sort of thing. So several members of the family came over. They had spent time in Morro Castle in prison. Anyway, he did fairly well, and he parceled together 170 acres in Springfield. And, of course, Springfield was Jacksonville's first subdivision, if you don't count La Villa, which really was sort of a separate town. And they lived on the Panama Road, and that's where that comes from. Panama Road has since been torn over. It was like Laura, which is to the west of Maine, and then Panama Road ran in front of the house to the west of Laura. And uh, he had a huge factory that still sits on Bay Street called El Modelo. And uh, she had 
a young man who also lived in the neighborhood. It was mostly forests and pastures and so forth at that time. Sato owned a few small houses for his workers. The young man's name was Eddie Pitzer, and he was generally believed to be the one who shot her. She got off the Main Street trolley one night. She had told Pitzer, who had uh, graduated into courting her every night at her house, staying for hours, had sometimes been threatening. Sometimes he would hide outside and watch them through the front windows of the front door, uh, head in the cabbage patch, that kind of thing. Of course, family was laughing at him, and he didn't like that. So one night she told him, she didn't say it, I'm sure like this. She said, I'm going to spend the night in town with my cousins. I won't be here, so you needn't come. Well, he did. The house was uh, a beautiful Victorian. Uh, the East Lake was architect, so it was very fancy. And it was two miles from town, built before the turn of the century. And um, it was relatively isolated. I think I'm, I might have said it had mostly pastures of the forest out there. Ran from Hubbard to Pearl Street. Anyway, she said she would not be there. She was going into town. He went out anyway. He liked talking to her brother, Willie, and frankly, probably wanted to check on her. He was very jealous. He followed her everywhere. And he got on the southbound train at 8th Street, which is where the terminal for the Main Street trolley was. And she had uh, decided not to stay for whatever reason. Maybe she had not been telling him the truth. Maybe she forgot her pajamas. I don't know. Anyhow, she came north, and he went south. And at the second street on Main Street or Pine Street or the Shell Road, whatever it was called at that time, there is a switch for one of the cars to go off and wait for the other train to pass it so they don't collide. That makes the passengers about two feet away. Well, he's sitting steadily in the second street switch watching everybody, and sure enough, there she is, and she has not stayed with the cousins, and he sees that as a direct lie, a direct affront to him, jumps off the trolley, raises home, and the theory is that he hid in the rose bushes in front of the house, and when she came through the garden gate, he jumped up on his knees and shot her five times, shot her hat off, shot a bullet through her thumb and through her elbow, and then tried to run away, grabbed her skirts. He was still on his knees. So he angled three more shots up into her back. Family was at dinner. They saw it. They heard it. They ran out and helped her in, and he took off. Again, he was uh, seen by a lot of neighbors. He was heading toward town. He later gave uh, a a totally different excuse from the one that uh, was given later as to where he was, his alibi. He turned himself in and... From there, the uh, interesting part of the book, I think, is the trial. Uh, I had a friend say to me, and I'm, I'm going to use her words because I thought it was kind of uh, interesting. All of the imperfections in a 19th century trial, including sexism, racism, and downright chicanery. Well, it's a local healthcare firm that was founded on the principle of increasing health equity here in Jacksonville. That's still a big problem, people not being able to access health care, even with 
the Affordable Care Act now being well established. So for more on the challenges of reducing barriers to care, I spoke with Telescope Health CEO. He's newly appointed to the position and a co-founder of the company, Dr. Matthew Thompson. Here's that conversation. Dr. Matthew Thompson, good to be with you. Congrats to your new role as CEO at Telescope Health. You've had a lot of growth in the city in recent years. Yeah, we have. It's It's been exciting, and, and thank you. Um, you know, I, I think what's neat is, you know, a lot of our opportunities are uh, outside of the state, um, but we are still growing here in Jacksonville, and we're a Jacksonville-based company, so um, we always look forward to doing work in our own community. Now, you are an ER physician. You and another doctor founded Telescope Health after seeing that too many people were coming into the ER without better access to health care. You're all about removing barriers to care, which is still such a big problem in Jacksonville and around the country. How does your model work and how are you going about doing that? Yeah, it, it's a huge problem. And, um, you know, we, we really have two ways that we reach patients. I mean, we, we certainly work, a lot of our clients are health systems, uh, organizations, or you know, insurance companies that um, have large populations of patients that simply aren't performing preventative exams, for example. They're, they're not uh, getting their annual wellness exam with their uh, physician, either because they couldn't get an appointment or they don't know how to. And so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there who just don't have that access. So we, we like to see ourselves as, um, you know, a, a fix for the capacity issue. You know, there's not enough uh, providers out there to see people oftentimes in a timely manner. So we love to work alongside clients in that capacity. Um, you know, on, on the other side of this is the issue with health equity. And that is really uh, a big passion project for us is to fight the disparities that exist because, People um, uh, don't have simply access to care because of health equity problems, um, either because of uh, their socioeconomic status, because of their education level, because they're below the poverty level. Um, these are real issues. And the more that we um, tackle the problems for those that can access uh, health care, the more we create a disparity between those people, um, like myself, who maybe once I figure out how to make an appointment, I'll get it and I'll get my preventative care and those who just don't have access to it. And so locally in Jacksonville, that is a huge initiative for us right now to to work with nonprofit organizations and partners that can help us reach people that have never had a physician visit before. You have partnered with a number of local nonprofits, and you're a big proponent of telemedicine. How is that part of what you do? Well, our company, in essence, is, is a virtual care company. Um, we provide 24-7 physician coverage. Um, and we do that uh, with partners here locally. Um, Baptist Health is one of our uh, clients and uh, a great partner for us. Um, so we provide 24-7 physician care for them virtually. Um, we provide 24-7 care coordination as well. So we have people ready to pick up the phone um, to just help you find out, how can I get a follow-up appointment? Um, how can I get uh, an MRI done on my back? How can I get outpatient labs done? So really somebody to help handhold people uh, through that process. Um, and, you know, we've been fortunate. We've developed um, some great relationships with local nonprofits as well. Um, one of those is We Care Jacks, um, uh, who we're working with right now to provide virtual care um, for some of the patients that they're treating as well. So mm. I'd love to see that initiative grow. Now, you did a lot of COVID testing around town throughout the pandemic. That ended at the end of 2022. How are you seeing that uh, healthcare challenge playing out around the community? Uh, COVID's still with us, although we're in a new phase of this. Yeah, it is. You know, COVID was was certainly a way for us um, to 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 grow, and we expanded significantly from our partnerships with the city. Um, you know, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic um, thousands and thousands of people in the matter of of you know a week, really uh, in March of 2020, and. So we learned a lot on how to reach large populations of people using virtual care uh, and testing. Um, you know, COVID, you're right, is very much with us. So is uh, the flu. So is RSV. Um, and I think, you know, our focus really always has been on, on virtual care. But we're really looking at how do we not only capture people for that singular point where they feel like they need 
care, but then set them on the right track for ongoing care management. So how do we make sure that they're going to follow up with a primary care doctor and get the preventative things they need to do, like, you know, colorectal cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening, managing their blood pressure. You know, these are all things that, you know, once we capture people for that runny nose or when they are sick, you need to remind them, hey, you're on a healthcare journey. Let us help you figure that out. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. He's the new CEO at Telescope Health, which is based here in Jacksonville. Dr. Matthew Thompson, thanks. Thanks, Melissa. microbiomes in our health. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. Join me Saturday at 4 for What's Health Got to Do With It? Only on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Northeast Florida artists are making noise that's reverberating across the country and the Jacksonville Music Experience is your ticket to the local scene. Music reviews, curated playlists, music history, concert recommendations, and profiles of local artists all put together by our team of local contributors. The Jacksonville Music Experience plays it local and plays it loud. Visit jacksmusic.org to read and hear more. Well, nearly 7 million children could lose health coverage as the COVID public health emergency unwinds and states begin redetermining Medicaid eligibility. That's according to a new report from Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. Executive Director Joan Alker says the vast majority of kids will still be eligible for the program and could instead lose their coverage due to administrative issues something as simple as a renewal letter going to the wrong address. Alker talked with Health News Florida's Stephanie Colombini about why kids in the Sunshine State are especially at risk. So in a state like Florida that doesn't cover very many adults, the largest group by far of people on Florida's Medicaid program is children. And in fact, what our new report finds is that two-thirds of Florida's children are getting their health insurance through Medicaid and CHIP, which in Florida is called Healthy Kids, for children whose income is a little bit higher. And the state has identified just under 2 million cases of people that they think are likely to lose coverage during this process. That's a lot of people. We don't know how many of them are children, but I'm going to guess at least half of those are children. And what about the way Florida runs its Medicaid and CHIP programs could make it complicated for families as they're trying to renew eligibility for one or enroll in another? A lot of states just have one program for kids with one easy front door. Florida doesn't. Florida has multiple programs run by different systems and agencies. Florida also has premiums that are required to enroll in the Healthy Kids program. So there are a lot of moving parts here, and that's going to be confusing for families. And the governor and the state really need to step in. They need to make sure that there's enough staff and adequate call centers, adequate language support to ensure that families get through this process. How can the state help communicate to families, you know, you as a parent might not be eligible for Medicaid anymore, but your child could be? Yeah, that's a great question. And when messaging is being directed at parents, it's important to say your child is probably still eligible for Medicaid. That's not the messaging that we're seeing in the state. You know, when you hear about this issue, and this is true in Florida, but elsewhere too, you hear a lot about, oh, people are on the program whose income went up. And so now they're eligible for their employer coverage or the marketplace or healthy kids. Well, that's really not the case uh, for children. 
the vast majority of children, because the income eligibility levels are higher, are going to remain eligible for Medicaid. And so that's a key aspect of this messaging. Whereas there seems to be a tone now of, oh, wow, we've got you know about 2 million people that we think are going to get kicked off pretty quickly. No, that's not the message we want. We want to hear, we're here to help you make sure that your child keeps their Medicaid coverage. Now, the state can do as much as it can to use electronic data, available data to make this renewal process easier. Um, but really, the state is going to have to work with children and parents where they are in the community, child care centers, schools, pediatricians, everybody who comes into contact with children, educating them about this process that's about to start and encouraging families to update their contact information. Well, attention all teachers, we've created a special date just for you. It's WJCT's Teach Conference coming up next Saturday, February 25th at the downtown Hyatt Regency Jacksonville Riverfront. Our own Cersei Lenoble is here now to tell us about all of the good stuff teachers will get when they come out. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Okay, so this is a day for teachers, for educators, uh, for engaging, empowering, and inspiring them, even pampering them a little bit, right? Very much so. It is It is really all about the teacher. Yes, there is great uh, national keynote speakers and concurrent breakout sessions, so you get lots and lots of education that you can take back immediately to the classroom. But we try really, really hard to pamper the teachers and make sure they feel honored and uh, appreciated. And so we do special things for them. We have a sit-down meal for lunch, um, entertainment. We have a little teacher lounge so that they can relax in. We also do door prizes. We've got a $200 gift certificate to Lakeshore Learning. Mm-hmm. It's just one of many. We have uh, a couple staycations in Jack's Beach. Um, so it's definitely something a little bit more. We try and make it very special. Now, teachers come from both public and private schools, uh, and they come from counties across Florida Absolutely. for this event. Yeah, mm-hmm. we try and we try and make it accessible to the only the only kind of caveat is a VPK through fifth grade educator. Any place, any location, any uh, format of education, you know, homeschool, everything. Okay. Now, who? Uh, is the keynote this year? So we have two keynote speakers. This morning, in the morning keynote speaker is Ralph Smith. He is the managing director of the National uh, Campaign for Grade Level Reading. And then Maria from Sesame Street is Sonia nice. Manzano is going to be our afternoon keynote speaker. A little star power. It's a conference for teachers created by teachers. Teach is coming up next Saturday, February 25th at the Hyatt hosted by WJCT Public Media and Vistar Credit Union. If you're a teacher or love a teacher, register now at wjct.org teach. Thanks so much. You're welcome. That's next weekend. Speaking of events, in a moment, Catalina and Create Jacks will take us all around town for February. We'll be right back. After months of protests, Iran's government has tamped down most demonstrations. It's hard and our government won't go easily, but we will replace them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly with reporting from Iran, where anger and desperation persist. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. Next time on The World, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Malala Yousafzai. 
The Pakistani education activist talks about the challenges women and girls face in Afghanistan under the Taliban. For me, it is misogyny, it is just hatred against gender, and it's just people really afraid of seeing women in positions of power. Our conversation with Malala on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Robin Young. A new podcast sheds light on black singers, composers, roles in opera. Terrence McKnight hopes to inspire more diversity. Opera has so many opportunities to connect people across demographics. And, you know, when you step into the opera house, you don't see that. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. And what stands in the way of police reform? Since the murder of George Floyd and the death of Tyree Nichols, many are asking that same question. Recent efforts to change how communities are policed have been patchy, renewing a focus on police unions. Who's holding them to account? That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Well, they're a cultural gem in the city of Jacks, and Friday Musical has a busy concert season going on right now. And guess what? Their shows are free. They also host lots of other cool stuff. Here's executive director of the Friday Musical, Daniel Stark. Dreamboat Poetry and Music returns to Friday Musical this Friday at 6 p.m. That's Friday the 17th in our back cottage at 6 p.m. And then Sunday the 26th at 3 p.m., we've got a family-friendly performance by the San Marco Chamber Ensemble that's going to combine narration of a children's book, live projection of the slides with a chamber music orchestra. Both events are free and they're going to be fantastic. Please check out our website, fridaymusical.com, to learn about more upcoming events. Check it out. And they have a beautiful venue, too, in Riverside. Okay, it's February. There's a lot happening. Create Jax puts out a really hot list every week. Catalina Selvain is here to share what's on it. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning, Melissa. Good to see you. Same, same. Hope you had a nice Valentine's Day with your sweetie. I did. It's technically our anniversary, which is a oh. joke on us because we are not Valentine's Day people, and we thought it would get it would be funny to get married that day. <laughs> so now we have to celebrate it every year. <laughs> I love that. Is very Catalina. I like it that is. about that. Okay. All right, so what is serving up on createjacks.com this week? Oh, this is one of those weekends where there is a lot going on, and sadly, I'm going to be out of town for a baby shower this weekend, so I need everyone to go to every single one of these events mm-hmm. for me, <laughs> on behalf of me. Uh, so this weekend, the uh, the Big Bounce is back. This is the official Guinness World Record holder for world's biggest bounce house. Huh. Like, think about your childhood dreams. Here as an adult, and there actually is an adult jumping only session, and it's insane. It's thirteen thousand square feet of bounce houseness. I remember <laughs> when they were here last year on the river. Yeah, ex- and it's so cool because it is in Riverfront Plaza. You have that beautiful scene of the river, the whole South Bank, uh, and this year they have some themed houses. They've got space themed, um, and for the people who don't live in fear, there's the sports arena with dodgeball, basketball, and a bunch of other challenges that I'm sure people will love. Uh-huh. And everyone can jump in different sessions. So you can bring your babies, your toddlers, um, your bigger kids. And then there is, like I said, an adults-only jump session. And one ticket is three hours of play. And tickets only start at $22. Check it out. The Big Bounce on Riverfront Plaza this weekend. Also this weekend. This is free at James Weldon Johnson Park. A little hip-hop. Yes. Yeah, so Duval has a very, very rich hip-hop community. And... This is a well-loved event. So back uh, for its second year, this is at James Weldon Johnson Park downtown, hosted by Che of the local group Love Culture, which is also an incredible collective. Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to see performances and appearances from some of the most respected MCs, lyricists, dancers, visual artists like Willie Evans Jr., Higher Learning, and Mal Jones. And come hungry because there's going to be food trucks. You can also do a little shopping with the vendors. It's a lot of fun. And this year they're also going to be paying homage to the late Patton Locke, who is a Duval-based internationally known hip-hop legend. That's the annual hip-hop festival. It's free Saturday noon downtown at JWJ Park. And then Saturday night, what's Party with the MP? So this is really cool. The MP is a collaboration between visual artist Mubarak Abdullah III and Philip Bennett Walker. They first met in Jacksonville going to events together, and they do these really cool collaborations of, of live painting and other kinds of mediums. 
And so they've worked, learned to work together and have this like very specific certain aesthetic that's really fun to see and is known now as, as their style. And they've done showings in New York, L.A., Miami, Chicago. But now they're coming to Atlantic Beach to do a really cool showing. Um, so you can check out the MP. You can also view and shop for old and new pieces from the duo and enjoy some live music from Samsula Jazz. And that's at the Elizabeth Sarah Collections Gallery in Atlantic Beach. And it's free. It's Saturday free. night at 6. Saturday night at 6. Check that out. And Saturday and Sunday. This is a, also a much-loved event. World oh, yeah. of Nations. The World of Nations. Who hasn't been on a field trip to this thing? Right. I love this. This is honestly one of my favorite events that the city puts on every year. And this is the 31st year they've done this. This is where you can experience cuisine, artistry, dance, and customs from all around the world. And it's going to be at Tailgaters Parking Saturday and Sunday. Now, the countries that are participating this year, you've got China, you've got Colombia, which obviously I'm a little biased about. Uh Uh, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Japan, Jamaica, Palestine, Peru, cultures that you're like, how would I ever experience those? How would I ever know what those are like? The World of Nations is a really fun place to experience that. And you can eat real good at the World of Nations, too. So tickets, uh, if you get them in advance, are $5. And children in three children three and under get in free. Where's Tailgaters parking? That's over by the stadium. Yeah, right by the stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used to do World of Nations next to us at Metropolitan Park. But, of course, that park is being yeah. changed. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so check that out. And then uh, over at the Jacksonville Symphony, it's the Queen of Rock and Soul, Tina and Aretha. Yes, l- listen, the Jacksonville Symphony is absolutely killing it this season with their concerts and their events. And this is just one more to add to an incredible season. The Broadway vocalists Tamika Lawrence and Shalia Adkisson are doing two nights bringing these legends to life. Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin, and they'll be singing the classics that we love and all know by heart, okay? Respect, natural woman, what's love got to do with it? And, mm-hmm. of course, they are closing the night with Proud Mary. Excellent. JackSymphony.org for that. And for Create Jax's full curated list, go to createjax.com. That's create with the number eight. And look for this week. Catalina, always good to see you. Happy anniversary, oh, too. Thank you so much, Melissa. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Thanks to David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella Da Silva, Michelle Corum, and all of you out there, drop us a line anytime at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. I'm Melissa Ross. When the working day is done, <laughs> you know it. We're going to have some fun. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.